Right, hello everyone, and welcome back to Rupture Radio. It's Theermid, as usual, bringing you a very interesting episode today on the issue of vaccine inequality and the concept of a people's vaccine. Before getting on to the episode, I want to just take a second to mention that yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the podcast. Beginning as Left Inside, with some very dodgy recording techniques, and now being Rupture Radio, with the very same dodgy recording techniques, I'd just like to thank everyone who has stuck around, and listened, and supported on Patreon. It's all majorly appreciated, and has played a big part in us keeping things going. As always, if anyone would like to support the show, the Patreon link will be in the description, uh, and we also appreciate shares on social media. Patrons are getting access to an episode early now, which should be on the normal feed in about a week or two. Alright, so I'm going to jump over to the discussion now. Cheers. Alright, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by PPP members Connor Reddy and Finbar Lynch. Welcome, Connor. How are you, Dermot? Good to be back. And welcome, Finbar. How's it going? So today we're going to be discussing a very pressing issue at the moment, which is vaccine inequality and also the concept of a people's vaccine. Finbar has written a very good piece on the topic in Rebel, which I'll link in the episode description. And Connor is working on a policy paper on the topic with PBP. I guess the best place to start is just to get an explainer on what the concept of a people's vaccine is and where it's after originating. We have about, we have like four vaccines, for example, in Ireland at the moment. Um, these are so AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, Pfizer and Moderna. So there's four vaccines that have all been patented by, by obviously these big pharmaceutical companies. Uh, patent them like you would patent any commodity. Uh, so obviously they're doing it like to make a profit off it. But not just that, it's like, you know, it's because they have it patented, other countries in the global south and uh, other companies even aren't able to make the vaccines themselves, which means that essentially all the production of these vaccines are extremely concentrated, particularly in say, Europe and the United States. And one statistic I heard was that there is 10,000 uh, factories, for example, in India that could manufacture the Moderna vaccine. And Basically, there are these countries that just are, that have their hands tied and just can't uh, can't mobilize their own capacity to manufacture these vaccines, which means that we are currently making far fewer than we actually could have. Uh, the idea of a people's vaccine then is to um, have, well, I guess, at least one, one vaccine. Like we're, we're talking about kind of a WTO waiver, which is essentially to, to suspend intellectual property rights for all vaccines, ideally. But if we could even have just you know one vaccine that could be manufactured in the, the few uh, factories in Africa that could manufacture it as well as across other developing and poor countries, it would essentially free up capacity to just have more vaccines flowing through these countries. Because at the moment, I think one statistic I heard recently was that it could be that nine out of 10 people in some of the poorest countries in the world won't be vaccinated by the end of this year. When we kind of look at the delays that we're experiencing at the moment ourselves and like just the kind of difficulties we've had, like even just the past week with AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, like I know myself personally, like it's like the vaccine rollout was only starting to feel a bit more real kind of the last couple of weeks. And then it's just incredibly straining just kind of seeing the difficulties that we're having with that. And like when I just start to think about that, I just can't imagine what it's like, you know, in, like in Africa or or in one of these countries that just like just aren't getting any vaccines at all. Yeah, might, might come in on that as well. Um, I guess like early on in the pandemic, uh, 
is is where I first heard the the the, the phrase anyway, a people's vaccine. And I guess uh, when we're first kind of confronted with COVID and it was all very new and quite scary and unprecedented and all those other words, um, I was actually quite optimistic that we'd get to a place where you'd have kind of rational, cooperative uh, development of a vaccine against the disease and that that there would be no obstacles that like any obstacle to the rollout of that vaccine around the world would be removed and um, so I guess early on there were proposals from uh, some of the countries that, that, that Finbar has mentioned already uh, there were proposals to kind of share technology and to have a collaborative effort at developing a vaccine and uh, I think really um, it, it's it, it's quite shocking how those uh, attempts were, were, were completely rubbished uh, and shot down at the international level so as a proposal from some of the Latin American countries and Caribbean countries, Cuba was included in that group, um, to uh, have a common technology access pool. Uh, this would have been April, May time last year. But those uh, th th those ideas are completely uh, blown out of the water, I think, by uh, the, uh, the, the people that are involved in the global vaccine rollout now, the likes of COVAX and Gavi and all these other organisations that we hear about every day. They didn't want anything to do with that. Instead, they wanted to turn towards the private sector and a very small number uh, of companies uh, who were competing to develop vaccines rather than uh, having a rational approach, a planned approach to uh, developing vaccines. They were uh, racing against one another to get uh, vaccines and treatments out. So you had a really bizarre situation I think and it, it's really uh, I think cast uh, uh, light on, um, on on really deep problems I think with how we develop medicines and how medicines get to people around the world so the call now like Finbar said is for now that we're in a position where the vaccine supply is uh, controlled where there's an artificial scarcity uh, I think that the, the logical call the call that's been made by India and South Africa initially but a hundred other governments since has been to suspend intellectual property uh, on those vaccines which are mainly publicly funded and to uh, distribute them around the world. Yeah, and I think we'll touch on the, the nature of that funding later on in the episode. I mean, I, I've read a few different pieces of commentary on this, and I think it, it, they're obvi obviously quite keen to stress the ingenuity that's taken place over the last year and the developments in vaccines. But as Finbar touched on, the, this whole approach has led to some very shocking stats. I think one that I was reading was that for 14% of the world's population centered almost entirely in the global north will benefit from 96% of the Pfizer vaccine, which is one of the prime vaccines uh, treating the virus at the moment, and nearly 100% of the Moderna vaccine. I'd also seen in, in Finbar's article that only one of the 29 poorest countries had received any vaccines as recently as February 2020, that being Guinea, who received doses of the Russian Sputnik vaccine. These are just, I think, case studies and, and there's many more to find. But it's clear that the, the global rollout is going to reflect these trends. What, what kind of leads to this disparity, like specifically in the approach? Well, I think one of the major things is just having money to, to play the game, really. If you look at um, the countries that are doing well in their vaccine rollout, they're countries that have uh, put a lot of money into advanced purchase orders and all these other uh, things to get access early. You look at Israel, the kind of global leader at the minute um, in, in, in terms of vaccination, they paid double uh, the price for, uh, for for each dose of the Pfizer vaccine that, uh, that the EU paid. Um, the uh, 
US, uh, another country pumped billions and billions of dollars into the uh, major vaccine manufacturers. So you had a situation where uh, Moderna got two and a half billion in direct funding from uh, the US government. And on top of that, um, billions or hundreds of millions of doses worth billions of dollars uh, bought before they were even manufactured. So really the countries that could afford to pay the most got the vaccines uh, earliest and uh, and kind of had a a right uh, to, to, to claim supplies before anybody else. If you're at the bottom of the queue, if you're one of the countries that avails of COVAX, which is the uh, world facility to provide vaccines, um, you're, you're more or less uh, going to the back of the queue, you'd be waiting and maybe not uh, ever getting a vaccine. And I think the economics of it, like vaccines are uh, low value, but high volume items. They're like, it, 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 I think the economics would mean that the people that can pay more or will pay more per dose will get the, the access for. So it, it's not just an immediate issue. It's reflective of kind of deeper inequalities in the global system. Yeah, and um, in addition to the kind of the monopoly, I guess the big pharma have over it, like over the production of the vaccines, you, you hear about how many doses that the likes of the EU have ordered. Now, a lot of the time, these are kind of prospective doses that haven't actually been made yet. It's like that we've been guaranteed, say, two point two million doses by Johnson and Johnson, but ultimately, like the likes of uh, Europe and the US, like in principle, own those vaccines. So then you can have these relationships between different countries where say like Iran is saying like they, they don't want any uh, vaccines from the UK and the US because they don't think they're going to be reliable. So they're actually running a trial of the Cuban vaccine, which we, which we might talk about um, later on. But uh, you can see the kind of the, the kind of international uh, relationships between these different countries, um, given the countries, the wealthier countries who who tend to, you know, be kind of the big dog in, in, in this situation, the relationship to these countries can, can be impacted by it. I think there can be kind of um, a refractal kind of element of it as well, um, like within countries or within different areas, like with Israel, like where Palestinians aren't getting vaccinated as well. Israel get that supply, but they're, they, they don't see any reason to vaccinate Palestinians. So um, that's kind of a separate issue to like the actual suspension of intellectual property rights. Um, but it is, I guess, an issue of like how the supply actually gets used once once they have it, uh, where kind of other inequalities can then come into play as well. One of the other interests and things here is just how uh, what vaccines got funded in the COVAX initiative. Again, COVAX is this world facility that's supposed to provide vaccines for uh, countries that mightn't be able to access them in the open market the same way that like the EU and US would. Um, like they, they only chose to include vaccines that were developed in the Western world. So you had your Pfizer, your Moderna, your AstraZeneca. Nowhere uh, did they ever consider uh, the potential of a country like Cuba or Russia or China uh, or even India to develop vaccines of their own. And of course, these countries have histories now. We're not uh, in the 20th century anymore. There is a vast technical capacity in these countries. There's a capacity to make vaccines for all sorts of other uh, diseases and medicines as well. So I guess, to, to, again, it's uh, if things had been different and if there'd been a kind of more equitable uh, plan globally based on kind of cooperation, collaboration, that kind of thing, we might have been in a different situation. But I think the uh, global order kind of reflects, uh, again, the power of Western capitalism and uh, and rubbishes all else. Yeah, for sure. And and just mentioned there in terms of the advanced purchase orders, I was reading, um, I think it was Goldman Sachs, a report that they put out, I think it was a year and a half ago, where they stated that one-shot vaccines will never be a profitable industry and that that alone was holding back development of vaccines. 
And really, these advanced purchase orders have reversed the cost for a lot of these companies because the countries put so much money into them where they made it a profitable enterprise even before the product was produced. And that's why we have like a failure of so many of the companies to produce the vaccines now where Europe are, have been let down, however many from AstraZeneca um, and, and things like that. But when it comes down to who is putting the money and the funding in, into these um, endeavours, the justification for the system that you just let outlined there is that these big companies, big business and, and commentators say that they're spending immense time and money on these medical innovations and should therefore reap the rewards in terms of the profits and, and setting it up to service countries as they choose. Um, I don't know if either of you seen, but UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson claimed, I think last week or two weeks ago, that development of the vaccines was because of, quote, capitalism and greed, and that we wouldn't have gotten this vaccine, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, without the competition of many different um, private companies working on it. But this is far from the truth. I think many of these innovations rest on immense public spending and the collective innovations of researchers and workers throughout the years. Johnson's claim I was reading as well was rubbished in the last few days when it was revealed that 97% of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was publicly funded. What do both of you make of some of the framing around how the vaccines were created and the, the money that went into this? I think when Boris Johnson says that capitalism and greed is why the vaccines have been developed. It's it's why the vaccines have gone to Britain first. It's like the vaccine rollout in the UK is like seen as like a massive coup for the Tory government. And it is that like they're they're getting out of it faster. The existing order, capitalism and greed, has what been what's allowed the UK to kind of surge ahead of everybody else in the vaccination rollout. But like, well, one vaccinations aren't enough. And like two, you need to vaccinate the whole world basically like it's a pandemic it's a global problem which requires a global solution and until you vaccinate everybody you're not out of it so like it's incredibly short-sighted but it's also i just guess, i guess like britain flexing its muscles as well yeah just to just to come in there um i i think it's it, it's interesting that he, he said greed and capitalism because one of the things that's most frustrating as a working scientist is that all the kind of uh riskiest research all of the like stuff that actually delivers kind of game changers it's done in public research institutions. This isn't done by pharmaceutical companies. It's not done uh, by private capital. Private capital won't take a risk on uh, on the kind of blue skies and uh, and fundamental foundational research uh, that, that leads to uh, breakthrough technologies like mRNA vaccines and stuff like that. So like, if you take uh, the example Finbar's just gave, the, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, um, technology for that vaccine for years has been uh, in development in Oxford University. Like there's been uh, there, there's been years of public investment in developing the technology that 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 eventually gave uh, gave, gave us the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And the, initially, the researchers uh, had uh, an intent to make that vaccine publicly available to people all around the world. It's actually one of their uh, one of their uh, I guess strongest convictions uh, when they when they first felt that they might have a candidate vaccine uh, early in the pandemic. But when it came to actually getting 
funding and getting the the, the vaccine produced. Um, I had to speak to, I guess, philanthropic capitalists like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they put all sorts of stipulations on them that they have to get, sign, I guess, a, an exclusive marketing uh, or licensing agreement with a pharmaceutical company that ended up being with AstraZeneca. And then AstraZeneca were able to lay on all these other terms around as patent protections. Um, Oxford were able to kind of rest this uh, deal that allowed the Indian Serological Institute to make a billion doses uh, off patent. So there, there is a little bit of kind of off patent production going on there or licensing at least. Uh, but I, I think it just shows that uh, like it, it's it's a myth that profit drives innovation. Uh, real innovation, uh, I think, uh, comes from uh, comes from public institutions and too often dies on the vine as well. Um, I think just the way that R&D is done at the minute, most I remember hearing a figure, 50% of all pharmaceutical R&D uh, goes towards what's known as evergreening. Evergreening is a practice where you make these small, inconsequential chemical modifications to different drugs so that you can extend their patent lifespan. So a lot of the R&D that goes on in pharmaceutical companies isn't actually bona fide R&D. And I guess the stuff that is, uh, it's not for drugs that, uh, that, that actually make significant uh, contributions to global health. You look at tuberculosis, there's uh, 1.4 billion or 1.7 billion people infected around the world. Sorry, 1.7. And last year, 1.4 million people died from tuberculosis. Uh, we haven't really got a vaccine that's effective against adult tuberculosis. We have the BCG from nearly 100 years ago that's uh, effective against um, uh, pediatric or childhood TB, but it's not effective against adult TB. And that's a massive global health problem. You look at uh, hepatitis. Um, it's about 200 million people infected with hepatitis C around the world at the minute. Um, there is a drug, uh, Sofabucir, developed uh, fairly recently, but it costs $1,000 per pill and it's only really available to people in the global north. I guess uh, what I'm trying to say here is that like, far, the private pharmaceutical innovation is never uh, is never done to, to kind of meet global health needs. It's, it's done to, uh, I guess, enhance the balance sheets of the pharmaceutical industry. And often that means investment in uh, medication for uh, erectile dysfunction or for, um, uh, I guess, a high cholesterol diet and stuff like that. It's, it's not actually what it's not actually about saving lives at all. I don't, I don't have the specific figure here, but I remember reading as well that after the last instance or spread of SARS, um, the previous iteration, there was a push by the medical field to develop a vaccine or to continue um, development on this. But because of the profit motive, it never got taken off and they, they never did fully complete it. I don't think it passed animal trials. What Connor's touching on there, I had seen that in 2019, the global vaccines market size was only $47 billion. And meanwhile, the sales of just four other treatment drugs, which weren't one instance drugs, they were things that you take for constantly for cancer, uh, rheumatoid, arthritis, and uh, I think it was multiple myeloma or something like that. Um, but it's clear that the way the model is set up is to only push innovation in areas that will um, lead to a constant stream of profit. And that's obviously put us in a, in a disadvantage for, for responding to something like this. Um, but even beyond the like moral or ethical objections to such a system, it's clear that an approach which places private profit over public health will actually impair the global response to the pandemic. Um, as Finbar was 
talking about there it's not really the case or sorry it is really the case that like if we're not safe until everyone is i was reading recently that given the reproduction rate of the virus and assuming that we might get a vaccine with 100 percent efficacy some 60 to 70 percent of the global population would need to be vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity that would block transmission and this wouldn't preclude the idea the the possibility that new strains develop in the global south as people are getting vaccinated in the global north what are the other dangers inherent in, in such an approach? I think the biggest danger is the danger of creating a, a two-tier humanity. It's something that um, the American socialist uh, Mike Davis has spoken about quite a bit um, in, a, in a much broader context. Uh, but I, I think uh, you touched on it already in, in, in the pandemic. We're already starting to see the emergence of new variants in parts of the world where the virus has uh, unfortunately let rip. Uh, just yesterday, I think we had one of the highest single days in like months for uh, numbers of recorded cases around the world. There's massive out open outbreaks across Brazil, India, Chile, all of these different countries. And uh, I guess that's a direct consequence, again, of having a two-tier humanity where there's parts of the global south uh, who haven't got developed public health systems, who haven't got uh, property resource hospitals or uh, any of the rest. And again, because of uh, uh, you look at uh, structural adjustment and uh, austerity and all these different programs that were foisted upon the global south uh, over the years. But I guess the immediate danger of all of this is that when there are such large numbers of people infected, there's a much greater chance that you will get a novel variant of the virus that uh, either evades uh, some vaccine protection or that uh, is more deadly. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened uh, in Brazil uh, with the, the P1 and P2 variants. Um, if you look, it's, it's really a horror story, but it's a horror story worth telling um, that back in October, there was a, a study uh, called a seroprevalence study where they basically look at how many people in the population of Brazil have um, antibodies uh, to uh, against SARS-CoV-2, the virus. Um, and in Manaus, in northern Brazil, back in October, between 60 and 75% of people were seropositive, meaning they, they had evidence of prior infection. At that point, that's when you had the emergence of one of these new variants. Uh, and and, and it, it, it kind of seeded a new outbreak where people were getting reinfected. People who'd already had COVID were getting reinfected and by November, December time, you had the hospitals overwhelmed, you had oxygen stores depleted and you needed uh, importation of basic medical supplies from neighbouring countries. Now that's become the story across Brazil and the entirety of the country, uh, mainly because of Bolsonaro's kind of intransigence and mismanagement of the pandemic if the whole thing in meltdown. Um, I've heard reports of certain hospitals having to use like animal sedatives instead of human sedative drugs to intubate people. Um, and, and other horror stories like that. So I guess like th these these new variants when they arise aren't just dangerous where they arise. They're dangerous all around the world, and they could set back uh, all of the efforts that, uh, that that we've made so far to suppress the disease and vaccinate populations. Um, the novel variant in South Africa, uh, some trial data, it's maybe in slight, it's maybe still in debate, but up for debate. But um, there's a suggestion that the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine is only 
10% effective against this new variant. So what would we do if we were in a situation maybe in September or October when the bulk of the Irish population is vaccinated and all of a sudden there's a new variant that comes on the scene and it gets imported here uh, and then we're back to square one and all of that effort to vaccinate our population is undone. I mean, this like it really, really can't be overstated. We're not safe until everyone's safe on a global level. And I think until we learn this lesson, like we're, 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 we're doomed to kind of circle around uh, the plug hole. In terms of those variants, just like so worried anytime I just think about managing hotel quarantine because like the government have just been so reluctant to do it and even when they come to the point of doing it suddenly in a city just full of empty hotels we don't have fucking hotel capacity for people coming into the country like to to, to stay there for 14 days so we can be sure that they're that they're not bringing a variant into the country and just yeah like you just you keep seeing all these stories being pumped out concerted attempts to try and undermine it today there was like a story about a, a 10 day old baby and like this is seen as like a self-evidently like evil thing like regardless of, like about you know fucking direct provision or you know, like essentially imprisoned, like in Ireland today, that they, that they don't care about. It's like it's it's ultimately fourteen days and uh, like a proportionate public health measure to make sure that we are protected from variants. I think, as Connor was telling me yesterday, I think we do have some community transmission of the Brazilian variant, which is one that again, like that vaccines are struggling to kind of measure up against. Um, and as long as that's the case, like we're like we're we're still like. And potentially in big trouble further down the line regardless of how well the vaccination rollout is going. And I think it just extends the entire process as well. I think Connor would have mentioned there that had we had an adequate response to this at the start and, and crushed it um, altogether, you did have a willingness from people to commit to lockdowns, commit to things like that. Um, and having set back ourselves again at Christmas and now facing into, I've I seen Michal Martin wouldn't rule out that the idea that we may go back into a winter lockdown. And obviously, if, if something like a new strain was to emerge with the same lack of response, it could see an extension of th- this whole process. And that whole time, I think you're, people are becoming more disaffected with any response to it and any potentiality that we might move out of this in the near future. And, and that has even more just even more consequences for people doing the right things or, or moving in the right direction. And obviously that sets us back uh, again. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the other big risks here is that COVID's going to be with us forever. A lot of people have suggested that like, COVID could be an endemic uh, thing now. It could be We could be stuck with different strains of COVID that have uh, that re-emerge and disappear uh, over time. So I guess uh, this is why the people's vaccine is so important. Um, every year uh, we have uh, slightly different strains of flu that circulate. Um, and there's actually quite a good mechanism to deal with that and it's been established for uh, over 40 years. It's called FluNet. So FluNet is uh, is run by the World Health Organization. It's not, uh, it doesn't really involve uh, the uh, private pharmaceutical sector. It's uh, it's a global not-for-profit initiative. I think there's about 150 different labs around the world that do viral surveillance. So they go look at suspected flu cases, take samples, sequence them, and uh, they look to see what the dominant strains are 
each year. So in Ireland and in the Northern Hemisphere every year, our vaccine uh, and what goes, what strains our vaccine protects against is kind of based on what strains are in circulation in the winter in the Southern Hemisphere just before. So there's a system every year where this, uh, like there's surveillance all around the world and then the World Health Organization centrally uh, with, with a couple of partnered labs develop a formula for a vaccine, a flu vaccine every year. All of this is done collaboratively, it's done rationally yeah. and that formula is made available for anyone who wants to manufacture it. So sometimes it is manufactured by private pharmaceutical companies, other times it's manufactured by state uh, pharmaceutical companies or not for not-for-profit basis kind of contracted out. So like there is a model here and I think that uh, winning that model uh, to, to kind of deal with the immediate crisis of COVID is important but also like to have a model to, to, to kind of rely on if COVID is with us forever, that we can have kind of seasonal vaccination, that we can roll out billions of doses of uh, vaccines against it in the same way that we do with flu every year. Um, and I think this, this, this is the direction we need to move in. So it, it, it has a much larger importance to call for uh, a people's vaccine, I think. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to skip ahead because I think we're touching it on it here. Touching on it here, and um, just ask the question of like, how does something like the people's vaccine tie in with simultaneous calls that we would make in PVP or that groups around the globe would make for uh, a zero COVID strategy or the need to take healthcare like services into public ownership or to to put public health over private profit? Um, because I I think. What what you touched on there of like this being a, a a possibility in the future is is something that scientists have talked about for quite a while that we were at risk of pandemics and viruses and things like this. When I was chatting with uh, Andreas Malm on the podcast before, he was talking about the connection between deforestation and and the pandemic and the fact that you have more chances of zootonic spillover from animals, like it was bats in this instance, but that this was always a possibility um, given our further and further entrenchment on nature. It's clear that pandemics just like this are always a possibility and it requires, like Connor's talking about there, a system that prioritizes cooperation and getting ahead of things um, and really I think just like prioritizing uh, the response rather than the profit uh, of it. So I guess the question just stands of like, what, how does it tie into things like zero COVID, uh, taking healthcare into private or public ownership rather, uh, and other initiatives? Yeah, so I think like we're talking about vaccines because vaccines are sexy at the minute. Vaccines are being billed as, I guess, the silver bullet that will end the crisis and get us out of the nightmare that we're all in at the minute. That's not really the case, I don't think. I think a far better response to a pandemic would be to have a well-prepared public health infrastructure that could deal with the emergence of a new kind of pathogenic threat, something that could, I guess, act early to kind of snuff out chains of transmission, something that could care for people that do get in infected in a way uh, that means other people aren't infected around them, uh, that healthcare workers are protected uh, and that, uh, I guess, uh, uh, contagion is kind of contained wherever wherever these new diseases uh, arise. I, I mentioned earlier the, the effect of structural adjustment programmes and austerity and all these other things, extraction as well on uh, on public health in, in, in the global south. Uh, like there's a, a brain drain uh, from, from, from a lot of Africa 
African countries at the minute where all the trained medical professions that these countries have um, it can't really stay in the country there's not there, there, there's not the jobs for them there there's not the livelihoods for them there so they're leaving the country and it means that they're kind of left in a position where their hands are tied behind their backs and they can't deal with uh, new threats when they emerge if you look on the other hand at countries that are well prepared some of them are quite poor actually as well like Vietnam has been one country that's done incredibly well uh, in, in, in the pandemic and they, they uh, immediately knew how to act and react to the uh, to, 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 to the to the virus um, and it was that kind of non-sexy soap and water public health approach we've had for quite a while that, uh, that delivered that success so I think uh, a priority now should be uh, ensuring that all countries in the world have a developed public health infrastructure and that that's funded from the countries that actually have the ability to pay and that like we also have to see a responsibility I think in the global north in uh, equipping countries at the global south to this given uh, the role of governments in the global north in kind of extraction from the global south uh, con- uh, currently and historically I think uh, it should be something that like is funded from countries that have the ability to pay and if that could be put in place that would be ideal um, and I guess just how it relates to uh, uh, public health and zero COVID how vaccines relate um, I guess like if you had a, a better system to actually manage uh, in contagion and infection uh, the process of vaccination become a lot more uh, a lot more straightforward and you'd have to rely you'd be relying on it a lot less so like vaccines can help you get over the line and into a position where you're safe uh, and you put uh, the immediate threat of a pandemic behind you uh, but um, uh, yeah I think uh, um, you won't get the whole way without having a well-developed public health system as well. Yeah, I think if you look at like Australia and New Zealand, you know, like they've they've gone for an elimination strategy, obviously, and then they don't. I don't think they have like an enormous uh, quantity of vaccines coming into them, but they're not under that pressure. Like I, I was sent a, a video like during the week of um, it was actually an Australian comedian made a joke. Uh, he had a joke about uh, Prince Philip who then died during a set, and then someone like showed him the story as it was happening. But um, yeah, like just it was very surreal because I was trying to figure out when this happened because obviously it had to be recently because of Prince Philip was. Like, but but it's a room full of people not wearing masks and like, just not like not being able to understand that but like because they've gone for the elimination strategy they're not under that pressure but like obviously in Europe there was just there was no movement early on the pandemic like why does the European Union exist if not for a situation like this like it's just failed completely in the face of like the greatest global health crisis in a century it's just been completely unable and unwilling to coordinate between countries to facilitate elimination strategies across the board I guess just to just to add as well, um, the interesting things I think, uh, or one of the interesting possibilities in alternate histories we could have followed is, or all of us could have taken example from Australia, New Zealand, and uh, and Vietnam and gone for elimination, and then use the vaccines in parts of the world where it's harder to do those things because there aren't developed public health infrastructures. So uh, I think it would have been a far more equitable way of doing things to suppress, go for deep suppression in maybe uh, Europe, America, Canada and the countries that have the kind of ability and infrastructure to do that and then to deliver the vaccines to parts of the world where people live in slums uh, in kind of high density situations and parts of the world where people don't have jobs where they like are part of an informal economy that means they're in constant contact with other people uh, where there's just uh, poor sanitation, poorly developed sanitation all these other things so like those areas should have been prioritised for vaccination and 
the areas that could have pushed for, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, zero community transmission or zero COVID should have done that. Uh, and I think there's maybe a lesson to be learned there again uh, for the future. As Connor mentioned earlier, like, you know, how vaccines are, are, are sexy, like they're kind of seen as a silver bullet. So like the, the, the effort gets kind of focused there. But like zero COVID, as much as, you know, like Fine Gael and the like will try and kind of portray it as just us wanting a longer lockdown, a harsher lockdown and just like more kind of uh, restrictions on people. That, that's to deflect from the fact that they don't invest in things like uh, test, track and trace and uh, ventilation and just things that will actually help us get the virus under control. And it's just, yeah, because they're not, they, they don't have the objective of elimination in mind. They just want to keep it at a low enough simmer that they can open up a certain amount of business. And like, even when you you, you see like articles from the Guardian that say that um, zero zero COVID is far better for the economy, even by their own metrics, than living with COVID, which is as which has kept us under lock, you know, since well before Christmas, except for like a, just a, a two three week period. Yeah, I think I, I've seen the stat that most advanced economies stand to lose at least four point five percent of GDP as a result of the pandemic, and that this alone was one of the reasons that we did get some of a, a bit of a stir in terms of response, and you had countries like the UK seeking to sop up all the the vaccines. But I think one of the reasons that we haven't had an effective uh, approach globally or even in this country, as Finbar mentioned there with Fina Gale, it's just because like the system as currently constituted um, is there, is like seeks the service profit of the main businesses in the instance of the vaccine rollout. It's the profits of major pharmaceuticals um, and also at the benefit of uh, northern hemisphere countries. And this is clear, like it's clear how the capitalist system and also the pan, the patent system kind of effectively locks in the inequality and inefficiency in the response. I think the the legislative framework that that would be touched on a bit is the trade related aspects of intellectual property rights or TRIPS agreement. What is this and, and how does it operate and how have things like this impeded the, the vaccine rollout and just the intellectual property system as it stands? So yeah, um, it's actually interesting. I, I didn't know a whole lot about intellectual property before uh, before the pandemic, but I've been learning uh, fairly steadily since. Um, TRIPS uh, and the World Trade Organization are actually fairly uh, recent uh, developments as far as it goes. Um, TRIPS was uh, an agreement that was uh, brought into effect in 1995, 1996, that time. Prior to that, uh, intellectual property and patent rights were mainly um, uh, regulated at the level of nation states. It might have been bilateral agreements and stuff like that between countries or multilateral agreements. It generally wasn't done at the, the, the global level. Um, there was a body called the World Intellectual Property Organization that was separate from uh, the World Trade Organization. So it meant that, I guess, the regulation of global trade was separate to the regulation and enforcement of global intellectual property. But that meant that the World Intellectual Property organization is kind of toothless and that uh, companies, especially Western-based companies, are pretty much powerless uh, to uh, enforce uh, their patents in other parts of the world. So like we all know about uh, the, uh, the, the kind of knockoff economy that exists in China at the minute. Uh, Tr Donald Trump was very critical of it while he was president, uh, but, but less well known as a kind of pharmaceutical industry in India. A lot of active pharmaceutical ingredients are made in India, uh, China too. 
But uh, for, for, for years, there has been a kind of lively economy in uh, producing generic and off-label versions of different drugs. So uh, I, I guess uh, Western-based pharmaceutical companies and others seen that and didn't like it very much. So they developed this new framework. And that's this is what TRIPS is. TRIPS basically married uh, the enforcement of intellectual property to uh, the global trade system. So it meant that countries where there was a uh, uh, problem, quote-unquote, of, uh, uh, I guess, violation of intellectual property rights, you could then threaten them and coerce them with uh, global trade sanctions. So bringing uh, the regulation of intellectual property uh, into the remit of the World Trade Organization allowed uh, the wealthier countries to basically enforce their will and to protect the patents of companies uh, all around the world. It's really a form of economic terrorism, I think. Um, and ever since, it's, it's, it's had a deadly kind of human cost. Uh, so obviously we're all talking about it today because of COVID, but there've been millions of lives lost because of lack of access to HIV drugs and and other things besides. So uh, this 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 world system it's uh, it's it's basically written by uh, corporate lobbyists. It's not written in consultation with uh, any uh, any kind of democratic input from people around the world or what people need. Uh, it's it's been completely dictated by capital and I guess uh, uh, inflected by. An imperialist world order, too. Yeah, I think what what Connor's touching on there is that, like, it is quite clear that the system is bound up in the social and economic relationships between states internationally, and we've seen this in the rollout that many global South countries are dependent on patchwork systems and supply from more wealthy countries. And that this is kind of a holdover of, um, like, the imperial system or or colonialism writ large. How did this system originate and, and have we seen much pushback uh, from these countries recently, I think, in relation to the people's vaccine calls? I think that the work of um, of the People's Vaccine Alliance, uh, who gave us the, 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 the phrase people's vaccine, uh, has been pr- pretty important. Uh, it's not really a radical uh, alliance uh, by any stretch. Uh, Amnesty International are involved, UNAIDS uh, in Ireland, ActionAid, and I think Trocra, Bacchus and Oxfam. So it's it, it's not really a, a who's who the social left it's more NGOs and stuff that, are, that have got involved here but um, what, what, what's been more interesting since then is the kind of constellation of uh, groups in the global south that have got behind the People's Vaccine Alliance and the call for People's Vaccine last month there was a global day of action uh, kind of to, uh, to to coincide with uh, the meeting of the World Trade Organization where they're discussing a proposal to suspend trips and there uh, on that day you had uh, I think actions in South Africa that were led by uh, some groups that were involved in campaign to get access to uh, HIV drugs and AIDS medications uh, back in the, the 90s and early 2000s. So they're outside uh, a Pfizer plant in Johannesburg. They're uh, outside, I think, the South African Ministry for Health. There was similar stuff going on in uh, in, in India, um, as far as I know. And it all kind of was happening on the same day. But what was cool, what was interesting for me is how it's the same people that have been involved in a bigger fight for access to medicines that are kind of leading out on this. Um, there's one uh, group called uh, Access Ipsa, uh, Access India, Brazil, South Africa, led by a guy called Achal Prabhula. And uh, they, they've been doing some quite quite interesting work. Achal's written now for the New York Times and the Guardian and all the, the, the different international publications. But they've had a, a history now of, of campaigning for, for, for access to medicines. Um, one of their members, a guy called Zaki Yama, uh, quite, quite famously in the 
the uh, early 2000s, late 90s, I think. He is a man, a gay man with HIV, and he refused, even though he had access to it, he refused to take his antiretroviral therapy. The reason he did that was because most other people with HIV in South Africa didn't have access. I guess around him coalesced this campaign called the Treatment Action Campaign. Uh, and it was a really impressive example, I think, of, uh, of kind of grassroots campaigning uh, for, for something much bigger uh, than, than, than kind of a local issue. So like, if everyone in South Africa was to, at the time pay, if the South African government was to pay for access to antiretroviral therapy, you'd be talking about $10,000 per person per year. So that would bankrupt the South African government based on the number of people that are HIV positive in the country. So there was a need for uh, an alternative. An alternative uh, that was uh, put out there is the idea of manufacturing uh, antiretroviral drugs in India. And that's exactly what happened. So they, they had these antiretroviral drugs manufactured off patent in India. as a, a global court case uh, against uh, the companies involved, against some of the activists involved. Uh, and eventually, um, I, I think it was settled and there was some arrangement put in place that got them access to antiretroviral. So that's it, it's a small story, but it's interesting that it's the same individuals involved now um, and uh, I guess uh, same individuals campaigning. Um, in Argentina, there's uh, again some of these uh, access to medicine kind of activists that are involved with the people's vaccine um, campaign. Um, in Ireland, some of us will remember the campaign for access to Orcambi, uh, Orcambi's a cystic fibrosis drug uh, used to treat yeah. people with a specific type of cystic fibrosis. For each patient, you're talking about tens of thousands of euro per year to get access to the drug. Argentina, interestingly, was one of very few countries that didn't sign up to uh, these optional patent cooperation agreements the World Trade Organization had. So there was a space in Argentina to develop uh, something quite similar to Orcambi um, and to kind of push that globally. And when it came to a campaign in, the, in countries like Britain and Ireland, uh, campaigners seen that happening in Argentina and spoke to the activists and pharmaceutical companies that were making the generic versions there, threatened to form a buyer's club and buy it to bring it to, to Britain and Ireland. Uh, and that's actually part of what forced uh, the government to fund access to or can be part of what forced Vertex, a company that make it, to drop their prices. So I think uh, it's it, it's it's quite interesting here. It ties into kind of bigger picture and uh, bigger fights that go on, I think, beyond the people's vaccine itself, hopefully. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And, and I would encourage people to have a listen to um, some of the interviews with Achal Perfala and also read some of his stuff and I'll stick it in the episode description because um, just the detail that, that he goes through on some of the papers is, is uh, yeah, very encouraging. I know that um, people for profit are working on addressing this issue or kind of contributing to the fight. And you might just outline what's in the pipeline, Connor, because I know you're working on it yourself. Um, and also if there's any way listeners can contribute to the effort or if there's anything there should keep their eye out in terms of events or initiatives. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess uh, people might have seen already our uh, All Ireland Zero COVID roadmap that we developed kind of earlier on the pandemic, where we laid out what we thought would be necessary to protect people, to eliminate community transmission, and also, I guess, uh, protect against some of the uh, social inequalities that were starting to emerge uh, during the pandemic. I guess this is something similar. Uh, it's it's kind of a worked out policy document where we come at a couple of different things. So one of those is uh, around 
uh, the suspension of trips and intellectual property uh, rights. So we're going to look at that in in, in quite uh, a lot of detail. So look at the international call, but we'll also look at uh, some things that we could do here in Ireland uh, to to do basically off patent uh, manufacture. So I think there's sections of the Patent Act, Section 2 and 3 of the Patent Act, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that could be uh, called uh, into, that could be basically activated. It's an emergency situation. So there are emergency provisions to off patent production of different things. So that would be one part of the argument. Um, I'm personally writing a, a section on trust in vaccines. And I think it, it's hard to divorce the question of trust in vaccines and vaccine he- hesitancy from uh, the larger kind of problem with, uh, with, with capitalist pharma or big pharma. It's, it's not for nothing that people don't trust the pharmaceutical industry and it's not for nothing that people uh, don't trust science anymore. I think it's really unfortunate that science has kind of retreated into the ivory tower. It's kind of been uh, hyper-specialised and the, it, not, not that there was ever a, a great degree of democratic participation, but it was, I, I think, in the past, a, a greater public awareness of science is encouraged. And I don't think you have to have a specialist knowledge of science to have an opinion on where science is going or to have uh, an opinion on something like a vaccine. I, I think we should be uh, kind of encouraging more democratic type of science. So I'll, I'll be fleshing that out and kind of calling for um, a, a more engaged system of research and, uh, and, and kind of public communication, I guess, commercial secrecy in the pharmaceutical industry is something that really undermines trust. So we're going to make some proposals there. Um, there's another section that we're going to develop. I think we're kind of unique in Ireland and that we have all of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world resident here, mainly for tax purposes. So we're going to have a look at uh, why that's the case. Uh, we're going to have a look at uh, the kind of different mechanisms that are abused by uh, the pharmaceutical sector around the world to avoid tax and things like that. So it'll be quite a meaty document. We're going to finish then uh, with a little bit of a section on how we think um, uh, 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 medicines should be developed uh, in, in a kind of socialist system, in a rational way, a collaborative way um, all around the world. So like we talked already about how uh, capitalist pharma fails to meet the health needs of uh, people around the world. So I guess we want to start envisioning a, a different kind of system. And here we're looking back to some good examples, actually, um, uh, in the last couple of years, the British Labour Party, uh, the kind of height of the Corbyn era, put out a document called Medicines for the Many, where they started to talk about the idea of a non-profit pharmaceutical sector. They started to talk about um, uh, easing kind of patent restrictions uh, to, to, to increase access to medicines around the world, stuff like that. So it's really just a it's it's a start of conversation. I think a conversation that will hopefully develop. And um, obviously now at the minute with uh, Biden's plans for tax reform, that that sort of model tax haven model might be uh, in danger. But there are a lot of people in Ireland with uh, scientific expertise and expertise in kind of uh, pharmaceutical R and D and production. So I think the, the rational thing to do if that's in jeopardy would be to uh, set up a state pharmaceutical company that makes medicines that does R&D in a public way uh, with democratic input uh, and uh, and people's health needs at its uh, at its very core. So yeah, that's what we're doing. It'll hopefully be out in the next week or two. So uh, yeah, if people are interested to, I guess, take a look at it, uh, we did do an update to the zero COVID one as well. So we always kind of welcome feedback and uh, discussion and all the rest. Yeah. Fantastic. And I'll stick a link to all these things in the episode description. I think there's a lot to keep an eye out on. 
probably a lot to come back to in in future episodes but uh, i think we'll leave it at that stage so thanks a million gentlemen for joining me it was a, a pleasure and i think we covered quite a lot so cheers for that thank you thank you